Good morning. Welcome to our worship service this morning. It's so good to see all of you here. We are going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts with Acts 4.36 to 5.11. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles or on your devices or follow along on the screen behind us. Uh, This is the first Sunday of Advent, and so we encourage you in your own homes to continue to, or to begin to uh, practice Advent and go through an Advent reading and reflect on the hope and the joy that Jesus has brought to the world. Uh, We're going to do today's sermon on Acts 5, uh, and then we're going to take a break from our sermon series in the book of Acts, and we're going to focus on the season of Advent with a couple of Advent-specific sermons starting next week. This passage that we're looking at today uh, takes place right after what we heard last week from Pastor Harrison. Acts 4, 32 to 37 tells us about the early church and how it was a community of generosity and mutual support. They were concerned with one another and wanted to support the needs of all the people that were present in that community. And they went to such extents of even selling their own personal property in order to meet those needs. And though this passage that we're about to look at emphasizes the abundant generosity of of that community, Uh, their giving was voluntary. It wasn't coerced, it wasn't enforced, uh, because the reality is that they still had personal possessions. This is clear throughout the book of Acts, as it says again and again that they were meeting in people's individual homes. So that's something to keep in mind as we read this and we see Ananias and Sapphira's sin. Let's read together. Acts 4, 36, 5 through 11. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the sale? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Have you, you have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it can be a guide to us as we walk through this life. We pray, Lord God, that you would challenge us, you would comfort us, and you would lead us to new revelations about ourselves so that we might follow you more closely in our daily lives. Holy Spirit, please speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the mid-90s to early 2000s, Lance Armstrong, uh, a a cyclist, was propelled to worldwide fame. 
His popularity as an athlete was unknown outside of the big sports of football, soccer, baseball, basketball. It was unheard of that a cyclist could be as popular as he was. He started a charity known as Live Strong to promote health and wellness. His fame came because he overcame cancer and then won seven Tour de France championships in a row. This was unheard of. This was the world record at the time. The most cycling championships won in history. However, all of it came crashing down when it was revealed that Lance Armstrong had been using illegal drugs to propel himself to victory. His persona of victory was built on lies and deception. Armstrong is just one of many public figures who we could point to who have built their lives, their personas, on lies and deception. Politicians, musicians, actors and actresses, athletes, sadly, even some church leaders. I'm sure we can all think of many different people. When I think of musicians, I think of the 90s group Millie Vanilli, who were singing and it was found out that they were actually lip syncing the entire time, even though they actually had good voices. Yeah, it is, it's ridiculous, it's hilarious. Why do people deceive? Why do they do this? It's because they want people to view them in a certain way. They want people to view them as successful, powerful, well put together, and so they lie, they deceive. But the contrasting accounts of Barnabas's generosity with Ananias and Sapphira's deception shows us a different way. It calls us to a different way. In Acts, the Holy Spirit works powerfully in both individuals and communities that are unified and seeking holiness. But the Christian community can also sadly be an arena where Satan works through other individuals, causing us to not live lives of wholehearted integrity. So the big question that we're gonna to explore today through our passage is how should the gospel cause us to live in front of other people? How should the gospel cause us to live in front of other people? And we're gonna see two options that each one of us has through our two main points, spiritual deception or spiritual integrity. First, let's look at spiritual deception. Pastor Kent Hughes, when he preached on this passage, called what Ananias and Sapphira did spiritual deception. And that's exactly what it is. If we look at our passage, let's look in verse one and two, where Ananias and Sapphira, together they sold a piece of property that they owned, and with both of them conspiring together, they decide to keep some of that money back for themselves. But they would go to the apostles and laid some of the money at the apostles' feet. The word here, kept back, that Luke uses is the same word used of Achan in Joshua 7 when Achan took some of the loot, the plunder, from the city of Ai and hid it in his tent. Just like Achan, at the dawn of the people of Israel entering into the promised land, sinned, Ananias and Sapphira at the dawn of the early church have sinned and kept back some of the property, the, the money for themselves. In verse three, we see how Ananias and Sapphira let Satan fill their heart with lies instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The contrast is intentional here. In verse two and three, we see that Ananias is claiming he is giving the entire price of the land to the apostles. He claims that he's giving all of the money to the community. And the problem isn't that he wanted to keep some of it for himself. He could have, they had personal property. It was voluntary that they were, were giving it. The problem was that he wanted others to perceive him in a certain way. And so he lied about the amount that he was giving. He lied about what he was doing. He wanted people to perceive him as spiritual, as generous. And so he deceived. This is made even clearer by Peter's words in verse four, let's read it together, where he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? 
And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Ananias and Sapphira's giving was voluntary. They were not forced to give all of the money to Peter, but they wanted people to perceive them in a certain way. The result of their deception, their sin, is that God judges Ananias in discipline. His sinful lies to the Holy Spirit lead to his immediate death. As the narrative continues on, we see in verse 7 that his wife, Sapphira, comes back. She doesn't know what has happened, and so she comes into the church community, and Peter asks her, did you sell the land for such and such amount? And we see that Sapphira was also in on the lie. She was part of what was going on, and she agrees, yes, I sold it for so much. And we see that she is caught in the lie as well. When we look at this opportunity that she had before us, before her, we see that everybody always has an opportunity to receive grace and repent. Sapphira could have allowed that opportunity to convict her heart and said, no, actually we sold it for such and such an amount. I'm sorry, please forgive me, God. Please forgive me, my brothers and sisters, for trying to deceive you. She had an opportunity to repent, but instead she doubled down on her lies. God's grace is abundant, and there's always opportunities for us to repent of our sins and turn away from them if we are vulnerable, if we are willing to be exposed, if we repent and trust in the Lord's grace. So when those opportunities present themselves, brothers and sisters, don't ignore them. If you have an opportunity and the Spirit convicts your heart, repent and confess your sins to others. In verse 9, we see that Peter says that they had agreed, Ananias and Sapphira had agreed together to test the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, as they had conspired to lie. And the result for Sapphira is the same judgment that resulted on Ananias, death. We have no way of knowing if Ananias and Sapphira were Christians, but it is obvious from this narrative that they were not truly changed on the inside. Their hearts were not transformed by the gospel, by Jesus. They were performing for others. They were seeking to live lives of deceit. Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive Peter and the other Christians because they wanted the the prestige, the credit, the fame, the popularity that came along with, uh, with their generosity without the actual sacrifice that they needed to give. They loved money more than God, and because they loved money as an idol, they clung to it and therefore could not experience the transformation that comes along with truly believing in the gospel. The apostle Peter, who witnessed this judgment firsthand on Ananias and Sapphira, he had a lot to say about deception, spiritual deception, in his letters, 1 and 2 Peter. In 1 Peter 2.1, we read how he commands the early church to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And later in that same passage, 1 Peter 2.16-17, he calls them to do something different. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Listen to that again. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. I can only imagine Peter had in mind what he had witnessed happening to Ananias and Sapphira when he wrote these two verses, these three verses. We are to live as people who are free from sin, And not use that freedom to cover up our evil and cover up our sin and hide it from others. 
So the answer to our question, how should the gospel cause us to live in front of others? We see first that the gospel does not call us to live lives of spiritual deception in front of others. We should not follow Ananias and Sapphira's example of wanting people to think we are holy when in actuality we are not. We should not follow that path, follow that way. A great musical movie that I have watched recently is The Greatest Showman. It's a movie that portrays the life of P.T. Barnum. Hugh Jackman's Barnum grows up as a poor son of a tailor. He's looked down on and snubbed by society throughout his life, but somehow Barnum wins the affection and love of the daughter of a wealthy family. They get happily married and they have a number of daughters and the wife is just so in love with Barnum and so happy with the way their life is. Despite the fact that they live in a house that leaks water, despite the fact that they don't have anything, she is satisfied. And she sees her husband and the joy that he has in her and their daughters, and she wants him to have that joy forever, to just enjoy and be satisfied with their family. But Barnum, due to his low station and being snubbed by grow- as he grew up, longs for more. Throughout the movie, Barnum is seeking to gain more fame, more credibility, more standing in society. He starts out as a circus promoter, looked down on by high society as a promoter of freaks and oddities. Barnum desires the approval of those who are better than him. So he wants to create an image of who he is as a high society, wealthy provider of culture. So he engages a famous Swedish opera singer that he meets in England to come to America and go on tour with him. But in chasing the approval of others, he endangers what is most important to him, his wife and daughters. He almost loses it all. His family moves out of the magnificent mansion he has. The bank forecloses on that mansion. His museum in New York City is burned to the ground by rioters who hate his freak show. And he seems to have lost it all. He reaches a turning point. He's sitting alone in a bar weeping when the freaks of the circus, his friends, come around him. And he realizes what is most important, what has been important all along. The relationships that he has in his life. His family, his wife, his daughter, his friends. And he begins to sing because it's a musical. And I'm not going to cause you any pain and sing for you. But instead I will just read the words to you of the song. He says, for years and years, I chased their cheers, the crazy speed of always needing more. But when I stop and see you here, I remember who all this was for. From now on, these eyes will not be blinded by the lights. He recognizes that he's been chasing the approval of others, and so he built up this facade of who he was, this facade of deception. He remembers that he was always needing more, and it was never enough which is one of the songs that is sung in there as well, in the, in the musical, Never Enough. But he's not going to be blinded by the lights of seeking other people's approval, of having this facade of who he is so people will love him. He realizes that he already has what he longs for, relationships with his wife and daughter that are satisfying. The movie ends with Barnum watching his daughter's ballet recital, and he's singing lowly, it's everything you ever want, it's everything you ever need, and it's here right in front of you. He's realized that all that he was longing for and the approval that he was seeking from others, he already has in his relationship with his family. Barnum realized in his, the movie that he was chasing the wrong things and pursuing those caused him to try to deceive others. But what he longed for, the real relationships, he already had them. 
He already had them. We also long for the wrong things. We long for approval from others. We long for people to view us in a certain way. And so we also erect these facades of deception. But everything we've ever wanted, everything we've really longed for is already ours in our relationship with Christ Jesus. We are already saved and redeemed to a right relationship with God and a right relationship with other people. A life of love towards God and towards our neighbor. A life that does not long for more because it's satisfied in what our creator has given us. Now Ananias and Sapphira's particular sin was focused on money and generosity, but we can do this in all areas of our life and spirituality. All of us too often want the world to perceive us as put together, more holy, better than we actually are. We are all hypocrites to varying degrees who live lives of deception. As we seek to live in front of others in light of the gospel without hypocrisy and deception, I would encourage us to try to practice four things. First, I would encourage us to practice vulnerability with others. We all deceive one another, as I have encouraged us to think about. We all deceive one another about who we really are. So instead of deceiving, we need to live lives with the walls down and the roof off so people can see who we really are. Our relationship with the Lord is secure. We already have salvation with him. There's nothing we can do to lose that. And so we can, with confidence, say, this is who I really am. You might say, well, Nathan, you're a pastor, so of course you're holy, of course you have it all put together, of course your life is as good as it could get. No. If you were a fly on the wall who followed me throughout my day, if you were to see the impatience, the anger that I sometimes have towards my wife and children, you would say, Nathan, come on, brother. If you were in my head and you heard the thoughts that I had sometimes, you would see that I have so far to go when it comes to to seeking holiness, putting to death my sin. So I don't speak to you as somebody who has it all together, but I speak to you as somebody who is seeking to grow in this area just as each one of us should. Is your character and behavior the same behind closed doors as it is in front of others? A good friend of ours in seminary intentionally left her windows open so that she would speak gently and kindly to her kids and grow in that habit because she knew that other people might be listening. Sometimes we need to go to such extents if we really want to change. Second thing I would encourage you to seek is fellowship. We need to have real, genuine, vulnerable community. We need to share honestly with other people the hard areas of our life, the struggles with sin that we have. Are you vulnerable with anyone about your struggles with sin? I'm not telling you that you need to tell everybody your most intimate, deepest struggles, but if you have no one, then how much easier it is to hide your sin and think that you have it all together when you don't. Third thing I would encourage you to do is examination. Examine your heart, examine your motives, because the terrifying reality that we see in our passage is that from the outside, Barnabas looked very similar to Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas looked very similar to Ananias and Sapphira. They both took a large amount of money and put it at the apostles' feet. If the Holy Spirit hadn't let Peter know what was going on, Ananias and Sapphira would have been praised by the community as people who were generous, just like Barnabas, when in fact they were not, had not been. So the reality is that we each need to examine our own hearts and motives. There are so many areas where we deceive others with our spirituality. One pastor writing on this passage says, examples of Ananias' sin today include creating the impression we are people of prayer when we are not. 
making it look like we have it all together when we do not, promoting the idea that we are generous when we are so tight we squeak when we smile, misrepresenting our spiritual effectiveness in outreach, discipleship, or small group leadership, when a preacher urges his people toward deeper devotion to God, implying that his life is an example, when in actuality he knows it is not, he's repeating Ananias' sin. When an evangelist calls people to holy living, but is secretly having an affair with his secretary, he's an Ananias. This gives us a lot to think about, if we dare. Faithful church or small group involvement means nothing if our day-to-day life is devoid of personal devotion, personal prayer, personal meditation on the scripture. It means nothing if we treat our wives, our husbands, our children with anger, with contempt. There is a glut of church leaders over the years who have been exposed as frauds in their personal, private relationships when they had an image of holiness and perfection I guess because I'm a pastor, Google sends me all these notifications in my news feeds related to Christian things, and I keep getting this notification about a famous pastor in New York City who has recently been fired and exposed because he had an affair with a church member. There are countless examples we could point to. We need to examine our own hearts and motives. And then the final thing we need to do in this point is repent and trust We need to repent of the areas where we have deceived ourselves and others about the depths of our sin. And then we need to trust in God's gracious forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how deep, how dark your sins are. If you confess it before the Lord, God will extend his gracious forgiveness to you. We need to repent and trust in God's gracious forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Confess and repent our own hypocrisy and deception. God will extend grace and forgiveness to us. Even though we are hypocrites and deceivers, he delights to give it to us. His, our hypocrisy and deception doesn't disgust him, but he turns to us in love. But that's not where he leaves us. He wants us to be holy. He didn't call us and save us to continue our sin. He saved us to live lives of spiritual integrity. What do I mean by integrity? I mean being whole, undivided, sound, morally upright. So let's turn to our final point, spiritual integrity. The result of God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira was reverent, awe-filled fear of the Lord. We see this in verse 5 and 11, where the watching church community see what happens, and a great fear came upon all who heard of it and saw it. Ananias and Sapphira died because of their spiritual deception, because of their fake faith, their hypocrisy. And God wanted his people to know that that attitude that they were doing, those behaviors they were committing, was something to be shunned and avoided and not emulated. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was was personal, it was individual, but it was done publicly, and as a result had very real public consequences. The reality is that we are individuals who live in community, and so all of our sin, even the ones committed in private, have public consequences consequences, corporate consequences. But this sin that Ananias and Sapphira did was done in the public corporate context, and so it could have extreme ramifications. It was done publicly at the infancy of the church. If left unchecked, others would have quickly followed in their sin of spiritual deception. And church history has only shown us that 
humans are so easy to fall into the sin of spiritual deception. So God disciplined the early church so that they might have a reverent, awe-filled fear of the Lord and pursue a holy spiritual integrity. In our passage, as I have already talked about earlier, Luke intentionally contrasted Ananias and Sapphira's generosity with that of Barnabas. Also in our passage, Luke has intentionally bracketed Ananias' Sapphira's story with examples of the Holy Spirit at work in the community. If we look at Acts 4.31, it talks about how the early Christian community prayed and the place in which they gathered together was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In Acts 5.12, we see after our passage how many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. These signs and wonders were done by the Holy Spirit. Luke is intentionally contrasting the church community that's being filled with the Holy Spirit with Ananias and Sapphira, who instead of being filled with the Spirit were filled with Satan's lies and conspired together to challenge the Spirit of the Lord, to test the Spirit of the Lord. Briefly, we're going to look at 1 Peter 1, 14 to 20. Peter, as I said, wrote about a lot about spiritual deception. Instead of calling us to spiritual deception, he called us to a different life. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This passage written by Peter is a beautiful example of what theologians called the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is that which is true. The imperative is that what we are commanded to do as a result. The indicative is already ours by God's gracious gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. What's the indicative in this passage? It's that we have been bought, redeemed from sin. Bought with what? With silver and gold? No, something even more precious. The blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has bought us and saved us. And that is true if you have trusted in Jesus Christ. That is a reality that cannot be taken away. The indicative, the truth. But it drives us into the so what? The result, the imperative. What we are to do is a result. And we see that in this passage. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Be holy. Conduct yourselves with fear. These are things that we are to do because we are already saved, already holy in God's sight. God has already saved us from slavery to sin and death. We have been freed and we are accepted, loved, forgiven. Nothing we can do can take those things away. And so we should live as if those things are true because they are. So how should the gospel cause us to live in front of others? The true answer isn't spiritual deception, it's spiritual integrity. God's amazing grace has saved us in Jesus Christ, and so we should live radically transformed lives of integrity. God's amazing grace has saved us in Jesus Christ, so we should live radically transformed lives of integrity. In this passage, Peter is with the church community. It was only a matter of a week or so before that, that he was before the Jewish council and the crowds preaching about who Jesus was. And as we heard in our previous sermon, Jesus is the cornerstone on which our faith and our lives can be built. Acts 4, 11 to 12, 
Peter proclaimed to the watching crowds, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So we see that as we seek to live lives of spiritual integrity, sound, strong, undivided, whole, we need to build those lives of spiritual integrity on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and his salvation, the foundation that is secure not on a facade of deception that we want people to perceive us. My children love to build with blocks and Legos, and if I'm allowed to be a little prideful, I'm quite the Lego castle builder with them, and I am always building Lego castles with them, and the key to building a Lego castle of integrity, one that's strong and will last the test of time, and last, the epic battles between good and evil, the key to building that Lego castle of integrity is to have a good, strong foundation. It's not to make it look awesome, even though that is a key secondary goal. It's not to make it have this great look on the outside. It's to have a good foundation so that when you're playing rough with it, it won't crumble and you won't get disappointed because you're in the midst of a cool battle. So the key to our spiritual integrity is similar. The foundation is not your own ability or how we appear outwardly to others, to the world, but rather it's our sec- the secure position that we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has shed his blood for each one of us and he's redeemed us and saved us. The, that is the cornerstone, the foundation on which we need to build our lives. In Jesus Christ, each one of us is accepted, forgiven, loved, holy, righteous, regardless of the sins that we still struggle with. And through him, in the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith, we can live out this reality more and more day by day. So the question we need to confront ourselves with is, do we take sin as seriously as God does? Because if we do, then we will have that reverent, awe-filled fear that the early church had when they saw what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. I don't think in my day-to-day life that I have that same perspective on sin. If we do have that perspective on sin, we will grow in our understanding of God's holiness and we will hate our sin more and more and turn away from it and reject it because we have that appropriate reverent fear of the Lord. A helpful explanation of this is the cross chart. If you don't know what this is, please go Google it and check it out later. But the cross chart is an explanation of how as we go along in the Christian life, our understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness will both increase. We will realize that God is far more holy than we originally thought, and our sin is far greater than we originally thought. As those increase, we could run into problems if we don't also allow the amazing, life-saving power of the gospel to increase as well. See, if God's holiness increases in our minds, but the gospel doesn't increase, then we will fiddle the record, is how they explain it. We will fiddle the record. We will try to deceive ourselves and others into thinking that our sin isn't quite as bad as it really is, so that we can bridge that gap between the gospel and God's holiness. We will try to make people think we're not as bad as we really are. Now, if our sinfulness increases in our mind, but the gospel also doesn't increase, then we might try to bridge the gap by building up these legalistic rules that we need to follow, even though we're already Christians, so that we can cover that gap between the gospel and our sinfulness. But the reality is, neither of those methods work. What we need to do is trust that the gospel, Jesus' life-saving cross, needs to increase as well. Oh, there it is. Awesome. The cross chart's right there behind me. Uh, And so 
what they call it is they call it a, a shrinking of the cross instead of increasing of the cross. Neither of those methods work. If we shrink the cross, then we will be stuck and struggle to be made more holy in Jesus Christ. What we need to do is have the gospel increase. The gospel, Jesus' life-saving cross, needs to increase as well. His death and resurrection are more than enough to bridge the chasm between my sinfulness and God's holiness. And that should be our motivation to change. Now, moving forward in this life of wholehearted integrity is difficult. We often want a quick fix. We want to be done with it yesterday. We want to be over our sin and our struggles, but that inevitably is not going to happen. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it encourages to practice what it calls the ordinary means of grace. What are these? Acts 2.42 speaks about this. And throughout Acts, the same echo happens again and again. Acts 2.42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. They studied the word together. They took part in the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, baptism. They took part in worship. They prayed earnestly together. They had fellowship with other believers. As we do these things day by day, week by week, in community, vulnerable community, reliance on the Holy Spirit, we will see ourselves transformed if we continue to press on by God's grace. In conclusion, to varying degrees, we all live lives of spiritual deception. We are all hypocrites of one degree or another. Only the Lord can know all there is to know about the darkness of each of our own hearts and not turn away from us. Only God can see all of that. But he has forgiven us and washed away our sins so that we are clean in his sight. Therefore, because that is true, we can now live confidently before others because our hope, our security, our worth are in the reality of our union with Christ. We are beloved children of God because Jesus died in our place. And he's in the process of making us more like him, of purifying us by his Holy Spirit. Nothing you can do can cause him to love you less. On the flip side, nothing you can do can cause him to love you more. You are already completely loved in Jesus Christ as a beloved daughter and son. The result, the therefore, is now that let us live lives of radical spiritual integrity. Let us put away all those hidden sins and pursue him in holiness because we already have the relationship. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that you have saved us, you have redeemed us, We thank you that in your sight we are holy, righteous, beloved, forgiven, accepted. We thank you that we do not need to earn our place with you, and nor do we need to appear like we have it all together in front of others. Because in Jesus Christ, we are saved and forgiven and loved. Help us, Lord God, to live lives of radical, transformed holiness because of that reality. Help us to pursue that by the power of your Holy Spirit because it is a reality and we can do that now. Pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.